According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through Scriptures, as always. Join me again in John chapter 10. John chapter 10 this morning, we are dealing with the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Verses 11 through 18 is our focus on the Good Shepherd Himself. And then uh, verses 19 through 21 actually brings the passage to a close where we observe the insanity and the reaction of uh, those that were listening without ears to hear. Those that were listening with a mindset of the uh, their father, the devil, that... Uh, illustrates quite vividly how two people can hear the same exact speech, they can hear the same exact message, and walk away from it with totally opposite impressions. Uh, and that's uh, what we're dealing with here. All right. Again, John 10:11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them, and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Then verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Alright, that's what we're dealing with today. Before we begin, let's make sure that each one of us is in fellowship. Then we'll have a time of silent prayer to give each believer the opportunity. Confess your sins, quiet your heart, prepare for the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank You. We thank You for all of Your grace that pours out upon us day by day, the unmerited favor that we uh, don't deserve, we couldn't possibly deserve even if we tried to. Father, we are here in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is Your beloved Son in whom You're well pleased. He is the One who is worthy of all glory, honor, praise, and dominion both now and to the day of eternity. Father, we thank You that our position in Him is secured. We thank You that... Uh, because of this position, we have the grace blessings that allow us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this morning, Father, we are asking once again for your hand of blessing. We ask, Father, that you would reward each decision that was made to assemble together this morning to receive instruction, that you would bless that, reward that, uh, build us up in the faith and strengthen us in the inner man. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, it's a blessing to see everybody here, and uh, especially first-time folks that get, just get new schedules arranged. That's super. I've got to break your heart, though, we're having the next two weeks off. <laughs> we're meeting today, and then I'm going to the Philippines, so no class next week or the week after, and we'll come back on the 20th, so that makes the 21st, the 24th, the next, uh, the next Wednesday morning that we'll be here for the Life of Christ series. All right, are you going to keep prayer going? Okay. Ladies will meet at 9 o'clock for prayer, 10 o'clock for prayer, at your house. Okay. That's probably in the bulletin I didn't read. Oh, it's not. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been dealing with a good shepherd, and there are a total of four principles we want to get out of this text. We started with point one, where we dealt with the thieves and the robbers in verses one through six. The thieves and the robbers, and of course their objective is entirely selfish. Their activity is destructive. They, uh, they plunder the sheep. Their only interest as far as the sheep are concerned is uh, what they get out of the sheep. And uh, the, the uh, victimization of the sheep is their, uh, is their strong suit. Obviously, the elements there are nothing we want to have any part of, uh, but we do want to learn so that we can have our eyes open, we're not led astray from a false shepherd that is nothing but a thief and a robber. At our point two, we took the time to break down the idea of the door. 
which was verses 7 through 10. There were subpoints under all of these. I'm just giving a brief recap here this morning. But I am the door. This introduces a new basis upon which shepherding has been understood from the beginning. Shepherding has been understood since Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a keeper of flocks and so forth. Shepherding is not new in John 10 when he, Jesus says, I am the, the good shepherd. Uh, David understood it. Job understood it. All of the Old Testament saints understood shepherding. But the reality of the door is entirely new. The idea that we would actually enter into a position or an estate Positional truth actually being in Christ. That's all new. That's uh, that's unrevealed in the Old Testament. And it, it actually, even as far as the Gospels, it's it's just now being introduced but not developed. It will take mystery doctrine in, in the church age epistles to have the whole aspect of positional truth be developed, to be unfolded, to be made clear. But this parable, this uh, metaphor, uh, begins the process of introducing our positional truth in Christ because a door is something you pass through. And it's only in Christ, through Christ, then, that we have the realities of what we enjoy. So a lot of information there on the door, and I would encourage you to review that if uh, you have the opportunity or the time to do so. Under point three, now we move on to the Good Shepherd, what we introduced last week in these verses, 11 through 18. We saw that the good, great, and chief shepherd titles form a trinity, a trinity of shepherding passages. And this, of course, is the good shepherd passage. The great shepherd comes in Hebrews 13:20, and the chief shepherd appears in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. And these titles are important. Uh, the great shepherd is, is expressed in conjunction with his resurrection, the God of peace who brought up the great shepherd of the sheep from the dead. In Hebrews 13:20, and we realize that the great shepherd is his title that he assumes at the point of victory, at the point of accomplishing the Father's good pleasure, the point of resurrection and glory when he receives the title great shepherd. Chief shepherd is the title that he presently operates under in terms of the church age. He walks in the midst of the lampstands. He holds the stars in his right hand. Uh, the pastor of, of a local church is simply an under shepherd who is accountable to the chief shepherd. It is an ecclesiastical title limited to the uh, age in which we live, the dispensation of the church. The essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice and the ultimate expression of agape. The essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice. If the uh, pastor does not have the sacrificial attitude, then he has missed the essence of shepherding. He can be the greatest teacher academically in the history of academic teachers. But when he fails to identify with the principle of soul sacrifice, he is not a shepherd teacher functioning according to the design that uh, Jesus Christ laid down in Ephesians uh, 4, 11 and 12. So the essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice. Again, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down or sets aside or, uh, shall we say, puts uh, in, in the secondary priority his life, his soul, his psuche for the sheep. Sheep come first. And if his soul has to suffer uh, injury or hardship or affliction, so be it. The sheep come first. And this is the ultimate expression of Agape. Shepherding is not for hirelings. There's the contrast. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. You know, he's, he's really happy being a shepherd just as long as there aren't any wolves around, right? Because then, basically, uh, with the wolves around, the predators, beasts and whatnot, uh, well, now his neck is at risk. See, well, that's, that's just too much to ask, too much to expect. You know, they don't mind having the title. They love having the, uh, the, the whatever. They're, they're lusting after the, the prestige or the title or the esteem or what have you. But don't expect them to have any of the hardship that goes with that. Are you kidding? No, there's always greener pastures. Send, send me somewhere where there's not uh, danger, where there's not the wolf or the, sheep or the lion or bear and things coming for. You know, it'd be like... Uh, you know, I, I don't mind babysitting just as long as uh, the baby stays asleep the whole time. You know, uh, in fact, if the baby's napping when I get there and sleeps the whole time and never wakes up and is still asleep when when the parents come home and I can leave. Great. You know, 
That means I didn't have to change a diaper. It means I didn't have to. I didn't do anything, really. I mean, just sitting there collecting money. What am I doing that for? All right. The idea that these hirelings don't want to fight the wolves tells you something. It tells you they don't want to be shepherds. They just, they're just hirelings. They're, they're misthotes. They're in it for the misthos, for the reward, for the money. The uh, true shepherd, though, would do it without money. He would do it without being paid. And uh, money is not the reason why he's doing it anyway. That, uh, that becomes a huge difference. Some of the, uh, I, I think there are legitimate questions to ask for uh, pastoral candidates. If there's a pulpit committee out there that's searching for a pastor, trying to bring men in. I know the, the doctrinal church in Indianapolis uh, sent out a note. They're looking for a pastor. Uh, Bob Benlack's turning 80 and, and uh, wants to hand it off to a younger man. You know, I figure you've been pastoring for 60 years. You ought to go ahead and take a break one of these days. So they're looking for candidates. They're looking for men to come in and speak and candidate and so forth. And, and I think these are legitimate questions. Take them into the shepherding passages and find out. You know, what, uh, do you have a minimum salary? Is there, uh, would you do it without a salary? What is, you know, in, in obedience to Jesus Christ, where are your priorities? See, that was what Hugh Hatley asked me when Ralph uh, resigned and was leaving here to go up to Kansas. And, and uh, he had recommended that I become the new pastor. And, and Hugh took me to lunch and said, you know, we can't pay you. And uh, I said, well, what difference does that make? See, what difference does that make? So um, that's, the, uh, that's the issue there. All right. The shepherd-sheep intimacy is equated with the father-son intimacy and the love that the father has for the son, the love that the son has for the father. This is what's to be reflected in the shepherd-sheep relationship. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own. My own know me. The personal involvement of personal knowledge is, uh, is highlighted here. And look what the equivalency is. In verse 15, even as, to the same degree as, consistent with the pattern of the Father and the Son, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now that's eternal. That's what I want to spend the time focusing on this morning is this Father-Son relationship, the love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father. That's to be the pattern for the shepherd and the sheep relationship as per this text right here. And I lay down my life for the sheep. It might at first glance seem kind of disconnected. My father loves me. I love the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Are those unrelated? They're very related. He lays down his life for the sheep because he's motivated by the love that he has for the father. This is the work assignment the father has for him to accomplish. And because he loves the father, he is eager to accomplish this work assignment. Important that we recognize that. All right. We ran out of time talking about the other sheep. The sheep not of this fold, the sheep that are going to be conjoined. And did we? We did. We looked at Acts 17:26, and we looked at Deuteronomy 32:8. His first advent ministry was to Israel, and yet he says, "I have other sheep." Now, he does not say in verse 16 that he is presently doing anything with them. Or that he has already done things with them. Because he hasn't. Not in his first advent. Not in the earthly ministry. But he does have them. I have other sheep. But they are not of this fold. Meaning the audience he was speaking to. Meaning the Jewish people that he was sent to. He was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you can read through that there in Matthew 10.6. Matthew 15.24. The episode where he's trying to take a a little bit of R&R away from the hostility, and he goes out there to the Phoenician region, and that Syrophoenician woman keeps hounding him about a uh, healing that she needs for her daughter. And uh, the passage that we looked at there. But I have other sheep which are not of this fold. That j- Clearly, there is a distinction between the folds. There is a distinction between the sheep. And this is where a lot of covenant theologians get it messed up. A lot of other churches get it messed up. They don't see distinctions between the sheep. All right. They just say, well, it's just a kind of a general redemption kind of thing. And everybody who's saved is all a part of the same general redemption, the same general resurrection and so forth. And they don't understand the importances between Jew and Gentile in the Old Testament and between church and Israel now in the New Testament. It's just a distinction that's lost on them. 
And yet Jesus clearly is speaking about distinctions here in verse 16. They are not of this fold. They have no participation in this fold. In fact, they have a separate fold with separate shepherds, with separate uh, doorkeepers, with separate issues. In the future, they will be combined. As it says here, I must bring them also and they will, future, will hear my voice. Future. And that's hear my voice in terms of my sheep hear my voice, in terms of being a sheep now under his shepherding. But it's not yet. It's a future thing. It's like, on this rock, I will build my church. The church is non-existent at this point of time. He's speaking here in the fall of 32 AD. The church won't come about for another six more months. There is no church at this point. It's simply Jewish believers, Gentile believers. But a day will come when they will be combined into a single fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That becomes, of course, the, the foreshadowing of what mystery doctrine would reveal as Jew and Gentile united together, one body in Christ, in which there is no distinction. All right. And I know I stress this a lot. I stress it frequently, but I want it to, I want it to be so redundant. I want, to, I want you folks to be so tired of hearing it that you can recite it in your sleep backwards uh, because folks are going to be asking you about it. They're not going to understand some of your uh, perspective. And I think more and more when dispensational theology keeps getting uh, run down in the, in the modern pop Christian circles that uh, we're going to have to make sure that we keep our bearings each step of the way. They will become one flock with one shepherd. Notice, though, he says, For this reason, the Father loves me. For this reason, the Father loves me. Now, this is going to take some work. And we're going to try to relate it in, in terms that um, some of it we're going to reconcile with other concepts and other aspects. And then some of it we're going to have to try to do some work to, to at least explain it to ourselves. Uh, for this reason, the Father loves me. We have a causative statement in terms of the Father's love. And before I put the point up, agape love, often referred to as unconditional love. Love that is based on the character of the one loving, not the merit of the one being loved. All right? We often think of it in those terms, and that's the, that's the good way to think of it. That's the, that's the right way to think of it. Um, and and we, when we teach it that way, we can demonstrate how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the reason why he loved the cosmos was not because the world was lovely or lovable, but because God's character was a God of love who had the infinite capacity in sacrificial love to, to do that. Likewise, husbands are commanded to love their wives, not for their characteristics or their worthiness, but for the integrity of being a lover by nature uh, in obedience to the Father's design for your role as a husband. The other kind of love, the philos love, phileo love, that's the love of rapport. That's the love uh, that does view the merit of the object. That's the love that is oriented towards the value that is seen in the object. And so that rapport love, the friendship love, is, uh, is that. And that's the one that, that will ebb and flow and, and increase and decrease and disappear and all kinds of things. All right, Agape never fails because agape is not uh, dependent upon the merit of the object. Now, having said all that, what happens with agape love, even though it's independent from the merit of the object, what happens to agape love if, in fact, the object is worthy of agape love. Because here we're, we're looking at a cause above and beyond the nature of God and his integrity and the nature of God being love. See, you say, well, if the object is worthy, then, then you can add phileo to your agape, right? You can have both, agape and phileo. Yes, you can add phileo to your agape, but you can also add a component to your agape. And that's what this passage is, is speaking of. All right, so it's causative. God the Father has eternally loved God the Son, but, this is what this verse is discussing, a particular love is manifested in view of the Son's volitional participation in the Father's plan. A particular agape love is manifested 
in view of the Son's volitional participation in the Father's plan. The undeniable truth that verse 17 speaks of is for this reason, the Father, agapao, me. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. In other words, he obeys the commandment he's received from the Father. This commandment I've received from my Father, that I lay down my soul and take it up again. That's verse uh, 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. On my own initiative. This is so key to understand that when God the Father designed a plan of the ages from Alpha to Omega to encompass every angel, every human being, every moral being of the cosmos, he designed the element of volition. The component of volition. Whereby we make choices. Not because we have to, but because we want to. The things that we do uh, in the terms here, of my own initiative. Coming back to the individual volition, the will of the one constituted, created to express that will. This allows for the agapao love to be manifest in a way that it could not before. Agapao love, which is normally independent of the merit of the object, can take the merit of the object into view and even intensify the agapao love. Does that make sense? It doesn't have to take the object in view at all. It can completely disregard the object and still be undiminished agapao love. Or it can also view the object and intensify the agapao love in ways that it could not do ignoring the object. All right, there's no better scripture to turn to for the love of the Father with the Son than the Gospel of John. Chapter 3, chapter 5, 15, 17, all throughout. But let's go back to chapter 3. I want you to see the love. And these are all agape uses, agapao uses. Agape is the noun, agapao is the verb. God the Father has eternally loved God the Son. There's never, from all eternity past, there's never been a time that He didn't love the Son. And this actually forms the core of why He created. The desire to give, love motivates giving. God so loved the world that He gave. Alright? Love, give. Okay? God loves the Son. And what do you give somebody who has everything? <laughs> right? Eternity past, you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's all that exists. That's all that is. The eternal I am. And the Father loves the Son. The Holy Spirit loves the Son. What else is there? He has everything. He is everything. Well, let's create something. Bring something into existence that was not previously in existence. Beings, creatures, intelligent beings, intelligent creatures moral beings, moral creatures, who can also learn from the Father so as to love the Son that the Father loves. What can the Father give the Son? Us. Born again, brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, those who love the Son. In fact, a thousand generations of those who love me. That's what the Father can give the Son. All right? But the brilliance of it, the idea of not just creating uh, mindless slaves, zombies that love because they have to love, what value is that? The way that agape can be intensified when the uh, fellowship, when the relationship comes on the basis of one's initiative, such as we see here, that Jesus Christ on his own initiative accomplished the purpose of the Father. All right, so John 3, we've got the Father, we've got love all throughout here. In fact, this is the message of salvation. God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Father's provision for the cosmos was a loving provision for eternal life. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have presently an abiding possession, eternal life. Down to verse 35. The Father loves the Son. 
This is a present statement, continuous action, eternally, the ongoing eternal love of the Father for the Son. That's what the Father does. He loves the Son. And has given, at a point of time, has given all things into his hand. The love is eternal, but this point of delegated authority was a point in time, has given all things into his hand. It's remarkable the role, and we're going to study this at great length. Um, Part of this is, is just coming out of some of the teaching that John Eichmann's been doing lately. If you've been reading his newsletters, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was absolutely uh, unbelievable because the father was satisfied with the work of Christ but satisfied with the son's um, performance the son's uh, accomplishments and achievements as it were and it's really gotten me thinking I don't know that I have all the answers on it yet I, I hope we do before we get to that point in study but all judgment's been given to the son so who judged the sins on the cross was it the father or was it the son in obedience to the father when he laid down his soul. And it's, it's awkward. I've got to do more, more study into that. Not for today, though. Today we're still looking at love. The Father loves the Son eternally, continuously and eternally, and has given all things into his hand. When you love, you give. That's the attitude. Over to chapter 5. Love motivates teaching. And here's where uh, they're all worked up, trying to put Jesus to death. You know, never mind that you healed a man. It's the Sabbath. You broke the Sabbath. So we'll ignore for the fact that you healed a man. You did a miracle to glorify the Father. You broke the Sabbath. You're a Sabbath breaker. And uh, so verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. So they go from persecution to murder. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, his personal father, making himself equal with God. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. And um, this, is, this is a powerful passage. Many places in John where it's clear that he was making claims to deity. The other day, some, I don't want to call her a name. I could, but I'm on tape. Some misinformed, pathetic worldly viewpoint person tried telling me how much they admired Jesus for his morals and for the 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 moral teaching that he gave see of course they denied his deity they denied his sacrificial work on the cross or anything he was just a moral teacher kind of like you know you read poor Richard's almanac or something you can go read Confucius read Read uh, Dear Abby in the newspaper. What, you know, just find something uh, uplifting. Watch Oprah or whatever you're going to do, right? Well, he was a moral teacher. He was a good example. Okay. And so I just picked right up. I used the, the Norm Geisler method and say, well, you know, he claimed to be God. So how moral is that? Was he true or was he false when he claimed to be God? Was he a madman? Was he some kind of delusional maniac? Was he a David Koresh kind of lunatic claiming to be God? Because if you say that, then what kind of a moral teacher was he? He was a nut job. Okay? And this also is the, uh, the, the Josh McDowell approach in More Than a Carpenter. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic. Or he's truthful about the things he said. If he's a liar or a lunatic, we can blow him off and ignore him and quit wasting our time. But if he's truthful in the things that he's saying, then he's God in the flesh and we must worship him and serve him and accept his gift of salvation on the cross. So what other options are there? A liar, a lunatic, or or the the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? So uh, anyway, they knew he was equating himself with the Father. Here's why they wanted to put him to death. In any event, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Now, even though he's co-equal, he understands that the, the uh, protocol within Trinity is for the Father to have the leadership, to issue forth a plan for the Son to execute that plan. And that's what he's done since, since the beginning of time and before the beginning of time. It's nothing new for him here in the Incarnation. 
unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For, by way of explanation, the Father loves the Son eternally, shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. I believe first advent is the things he's doing. The greater works includes church age, ultimately tribulation and millennial activity. And then the pinnacle is going to be the fullness of times. We're going to see Jesus Christ accomplishing things in the fullness of times that are just going to blow our socks off. Assuming we still wear socks in the fullness of time. I don't know. Maybe by then we'll all be into sandals and bare feet. It's kind of a liberal thing, though, isn't it? The sandals and the bare feet. I don't know. All right. Um, it's hard, though. It's a political season. I just can't avoid saying some of these things. More love, chapter 15. The Father for the Son. Just as the Father has loved me to the same degree, in the same conditions, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Bride. That's our fulfillment in this. Uh, the, the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ so loved the church that He gave Himself up for her. All right? And we are to abide, to dwell, to reside, to remain. Abide. Meno is the verb. To abide in the love of Jesus Christ. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. See, now here's what happens. To abide in this love, to keep His commandments. This is what Jesus was saying. For this reason, the Father loves me. He was abiding in the Father's love. He was obeying the Father's commandments to lay down His soul, to take it back up again. So if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. All right. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Most believers don't have this joy. Because most believers aren't disciples. Most believers aren't walking in the light. Most believers aren't abiding in the love and obeying the commandments of Jesus Christ. But that's where it is. Chapter 17, last passage on this. The conclusion to the true Lord's Prayer. His high priestly prayer to the Father on the night in which He was betrayed. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them. Ever think about that? I mean, what do we do when we preach the gospel? We go, we, we preach Christ, right? What did Christ do? He preached the Father. He made known the Father. That's right. It's, it's, what was he going to do? Come and preach himself? Right? Like that old Stephen Wright joke when he'd say, uh, do you think when, when George Washington was asked for his ID, he pulled out a quarter? Yeah. I mean, what do you do at that point? He didn't come to preach himself. He came to preach the Father. And that the way to the Father was through himself. That much obviously is there. And he told the disciples that in John 14. No man cometh unto the Father but through me. The, uh, the only uh, mention of self in his ministry was so as to point the way through himself to the Father. All right. So I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. We talked about this on Sunday, the mystery of godliness that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The blessings we have of our positional truth in Christ. All right, so the Father has eternally loved the Son. He always has, always will. But a particular love is manifested in view of the Son's volitional participation in the Father's plan. We have for this reason and because. We actually have Two causative expressions that combine together to pinpoint it without any debate, without any dispute. For this reason, because. The, the formula for this reason highlights what comes after. And then the causative because pinpoints it. You can take this no other way. The agape love here in verse 17 
is is oriented to the uh, the son's volitional participation in the father's plan. He was doing so because he wanted to. I love the picture in Genesis. Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac. They walked forward together, and Isaac himself carried the wood. He said, where is the lamb, my father? The father will provide. I love that whole story. All right, back to Proverbs 8. Before we go to Proverbs 8, though, I just want to... Let's hit the gospel. We're in the gospels. Let's hit Colossians 1 briefly so you get a backdrop for this. We'll head to Proverbs 8 here in a moment. But Colossians 1. Discussing the glories of the Father and what the Father has done on our behalf. He, God the Father, Colossians 1.13, God the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So God the Father is the He who rescued us, and God the Father is the one who transferred us to the kingdom of His, God the Father's beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now He, again the Son, is the image of the invisible God. And he told his disciples that in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was the visible one in the flesh, in humanity. God the Father, God a spirit. No one has seen him at any time. But if you've seen the Father, you've seen the Son. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now this is an expression that sometimes gets dismissed. It gets written off. It gets explained away as poetry or as a figure of speech even though there's nothing in this text that lends itself to that kind of an understanding if a passage is is clearly poetic we take it as such we don't have any problems with that we understand uh, when we were told you know he's the lily of the valley we say okay poetry metaphor you know he's not a little white flower with stems and leaves and you know that's goofy we, we know the metaphor when we see one But when there's no need for it to be a metaphor, if the plain sense makes sense, we don't look for any other sense. The firstborn is plain language, the firstborn of all creation. We have an entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament that exalts the firstborn and the importance of redeeming the firstborn. So firstborn has significance. Now, a lot of folks, of course, will dismiss this and say, well, you know, it's firstborn in terms of, well, you know, he uh, he stepped into that because he didn't come first first, not chronologically, but he uh, he he became the firstborn in terms of inheritance. The, the, the father said, you're my heir, you're entitled to double portion, blah, blah, blah. All right. Well, why can firstborn not be in sequence? Why should it not be in sequence? It's only in sequence. It's only you only have a hang up with that if you absolutely insist that. Uh, his humanity had its beginning in a uh, Bethlehem manger in uh, 4 B.C. or 6 B.C. All right. But if the beginning of the son and his humanity was prior to that, then there's no issue with calling him literally the firstborn of all creation. So that's what we get when we look at Proverbs chapter 8. All right. Proverbs chapter 8. Because when we ask, when did the humanity of Jesus Christ have its birth? When did it have its genesis, its beginning? Uh, his deity, of course, is eternal, as the Father's eternal, the Holy Spirit's eternal, the Son's eternal. But at what point was the humanity begotten by the Father and the hypostatic union uh, invested in the person of Jesus Christ? The undiminished deity and the true humanity. When did that hu- true humanity uh, have its origin. What kind of origin was it? Well, it's a begetting. It's a, it's a fathering from the Father that created that human nature of Jesus Christ. And, uh, well, was it the, most people assume, because they don't put any thought into it, that it was the, it was the manger. It was the, the barn in Bethlehem in 4 B.C. or 6 B.C. All right. Except we have Colossians 1 calling him the firstborn of all creation, and we have Proverbs 8 telling us precisely when it took place. Before his works of old, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I'm reading from Proverbs 8 and verse 22. And it's going to take about eight verses to get to verses 30 and 31. 
But as we look at Proverbs 8, 22. All right. We read, The Lord possessed me, acquired me, fathered me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. Kana is the verb to acquire. Kana is the verb to acquire. It's a verb. You have it right here. Kana. In this case, Kanani. Because uh, it has the possessive me. He possessed me at the beginning of his way. All right. And who did that? Yahweh, the Lord, God the Father. All right. Now, to acquire. To acquire. If uh, you're talking about a, uh, uh, a thing, an object, you know, a book, uh, how do you acquire your books? You generally purchase them. Or maybe you steal them, or maybe you borrow them and forget to return them, or maybe you, oh, I'm getting a little personal here, maybe, uh, however you acquire your books, maybe you inherit some books. I mean, the, the term kana means to acquire, but it doesn't tell you how you acquired it. It doesn't tell you that you bought it, you stole it, you borrowed it, you found it. It has no reference to the procedure that took place. With reference to children, you can still use the same word, obviously, you don't buy children at the store, normally, all right, um, <laughs> as far as that goes, okay? You give birth to children. It's a term that can refer to childbirth if, in fact, that's the process that allowed you to acquire your child. If maybe adoption was how you acquired your child, you would still use the same kana, you acquired a child, all right? It's the verb that was used in Genesis 4 for Cain and Abel, kana. And Eve said, Behold, I have kanad, a man-child, the Lord. And because she kanad, she named him kana. She named him Cain, Cain. All right, the kanad one, the one she kanad. That's the verb that we have here. So Yahweh kanad me at the beginning of his way. At the beginning. This is an in the beginning passage, like Genesis 1-1, John 1-1, uh, Colossians 1-13. The Lord conod me, possessed me, acquired me, begat me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. Notice this is the first of anything. That's why he's called the firstborn of all creation. From everlasting I was established. That is, we're talking about the dispensation of Alpha. We're talking about the creative ages before there even is time. From everlasting. We call this eternity past on the diagrams. You will note, this is even before there was anything, before there was a universe, before there was a planet. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Now, look at everything he was. He was possessed, or kanad, in verse 22. He was established, or fixed, in verse 23. I think that's the term that applies to the hypostatic union. Did in humanity, united together in one person forever. That's the established. And then there's brought forth. In verse 24, let me highlight that for you here. I was brought forth and the, you want some strongs on this? How about the footnote? Born. What do you do when a child is born? What does a child do when they're born? They're brought forth. Yeah, that's right. They're delivered. They're absolutely delivered. Strong's number on this, if you're interested, is 2342. 2342. All right. Right there in the Hebrew text. So now we find out exactly how did that kana take place? Was he purchased? Was he found? Was he borrowed? Was he stolen? Was he born? All right. We use the term in verse 24, brought forth. We, that hermeneutically controls our interpretation or how do we handle the kana in verse 22? Brought forth. It's a childbirth metaphor. It's a childbirth. The, the imagery here is one of childbirth. And the father begat the humanity of Jesus Christ. And when was that? When there were no depths. 
when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth again, birthed, born. When he, now here we start to see the, the agent behind or the motivation behind the creation. Uh, while he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. All right, so this makes now Yahweh the agent of creation. He established the heavens. I was there. What was he doing there? We'll see that at the end of this passage. He wasn't just hanging out watching. He was actually the craftsman doing the work. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him. Notice, not as the uh, spectator celebrating all the great things the Father's doing, but actually doing the work the Father was directing I was beside him as a master workman. So everything that we just saw from 22 to 29 of everything the Father did, the Father did, but he did through Jesus Christ, God the Son, the master workman. Like you and I, like, like our church building project, right? We are building a new church. We are choosing... Uh, floor plan, layout, carpet color, I mean, all kinds of stuff. But are we the ones that are physically moving the dirt and putting the stuff up? And No, there's workmen that are doing that. All right. So you can say both ways. You can say, well, like if you ever built a house. Say, well, you, you designed it, you contracted for it, you paid for it. Uh, you're still paying for it. Right? So you can say, I built this house even though you weren't the one literally pounding nails into wood, right? That's the beauty of this text. It's showing us the architect, and it's showing us the contractor. God the Father is the architect designer. We can say, he did all this. Until we reach verse 30, we realize he did it through the Son. Through him then. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. See? And it was the Son who was the agent of creation. All right, so I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight. Remember, the Father eternally loves the Son. Rejoicing, playing always before him. Rejoicing in the world, his earth. Now, the Son just got done building it for the Father, but whose world is it? It's the Father's. Until such time as the Father chooses to bestow everything upon the Son. And having my delight in the sons of men. That is so extraordinary because man was a relatively late addition to the project. It was one of those unforeseen changes that gets added in the midst of a project, right? <laughs> okay, Because the universe is put into place, the heavens were created, and then populated with the heavenly hosts. The earth was formed, the seas were formed, populated with the, the creatures of the sea. The land was established, land creatures, right? Where, where was man? I had to wait till the very end, day six. And then woman, I had to wait even longer. All right? Careful. <laughs> I'm not even going to say it. You thought I would. <laughs> it's just too easy. That's too cheap. I can't even go there. All right. And yet, from the very point when the foundations were laid, when everything was put into place, he wasn't dazzled about the angels. He took his delight in the sons of man. Why? Because his humanity had affinity with that. He had already been begotten by the Father. Jesus Christ already possessed his human nature as the God-man. And so as the physical universe came into existence, it would be the realm of humanity that would be his greatest uh, pleasure. The fact that a particular globe is being established for human occupation tickled him to no end. All right, so rejoicing in the world, his earth. You'll note the, the centerpiece of God's plan is not Mars or Jupiter or Pluto or any other planet, right? Spend billions of dollars and put a little dune buggy up there to drive around and take soil samples and stuff. 
trying to find life and all this other goofy thing. All right. This planet is where he designed for the centerpiece of the of the angelic conflict to be uh, to be on display. All right. So you have that there. And, I, and I, to me, this is a, a wonderful passage that shows that we can go back to the Gospel of John and on our way to chapter 10, we can look at chapter one. And we can observe in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So for all eternity, God, the son, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ has been in a face to face fellowship relationship with the father. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being. Notice now through him. The father was the architect, the designer, the sovereign, the authority. But he brought all things through the son. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This just ties together so completely. I hope that uh, not only that you can see it, but then you can be able to explain to anybody that asks you why just dismissing him as a moral teacher is unacceptable. Because he is the one in whom, through whom we exist and have our being. He is the celebrity of the universe. All right, so the Father has eternally loved the Son, but a particular love is manifested in view of the Son's volitional participation in the Father's plan. Point G, the good shepherd's soul is that which he lays down, pours out, and takes up again. The good shepherd's soul is that which he lays down, pours out, and takes up again. And I broke that sentence up for a reason because there is a key element that comes in the midst of verse 18. John 10:18 has him laying it down and taking it up again. Why? What's the point in laying something down and then picking it up again? What was the point? Why not just hang on to it in the first place? <laughs> All right, well, if there's a purpose for it being there, if there's an activity that's going to take place in the meantime, we understand that this is the uh, work of redemption. This is the sacrifice being offered up. How he poured out his soul, Isaiah 53:12, And then with the work complete, takes it up again. It is his spirit that is committed to the Father at the point of physical death in Luke 23 and verse 46. So in John 10:18, we've read a number of times already that he lays it down, he takes it up again. Why is that? Because the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was according to the Father's design from all eternity past. Somebody else was telling me that, well, you know, the religious leaders were jealous and so they murdered him to because he was gaining too much popularity. That's a very worldly way of looking at things, isn't it? So, man, just think what Jesus might have done if he wasn't killed so soon. You know? What kind of impact might he have had if he could have just lived a little bit longer? What a dumb human earthly way of thinking. He only accomplished the eternal plan of God the Father in the perfect timing. All right? Yeah, human jealousy. They were they put him to death. They they he was getting too popular. Actually, at that point, the popularity had plummeted to the point that they could get away with putting him to death. You know, they they didn't put him to death when he had the crowds and the five thousands and all the excitement and the jazz and stuff. But after they started peeling away, when he was down to his final dozen or so, okay, well now let's let's get rid of him. Well, we have the chance. In Isaiah fifty three, we have seven hundred years before the death of Christ. We have the whole crucifixion portrayed here and uh, you will note in verse 7 he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb he is led to the slaughter like a sheep that is silent before it shears so he did not open his mouth and all the accusations were made and Pilate asked him to defend himself he'd have no part of that and you'll note um, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render, what you want to understand here is the soul that's in view, himself in verse 10, anguish of soul in verse 11, verse 12, poured out himself to death. The term here is nephesh, his soul. 
And so the Lord was pleased to crush him. This is the father's work of our redemption, putting him to grief. If he would render his soul a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. Why was the father satisfied? Because Jesus Christ had laid down his soul, the one who knew no sin. He will see and be satisfied. The whole idea of propitiation, the Father's satisfaction with the the ultimate sacrifice in the entire universe. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So the good shepherd's soul is that which he lays down, pours out, and takes up again. It is finished. It is done. It is his spirit committed to the Father at the point of physical death. Luke twenty-three, forty-six. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He breathes his last and he physically dies. All right. We'll have more detail on that. Now, what was the Jewish leader's response? I want to end this today because we're not coming back for three weeks. Jewish leaders go schizo. John 10, 19-21. The Jewish leaders go schizo. The vocabulary here, schizomai. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Alright, a schisma, division, schism. They had him before. They had a big one in chapter 8 when he was proclaiming the light of the world. A big schism unfolded there. Now, he's talking about laying down his soul, taking up his soul. And uh, they can't handle any of this. Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? (laughs) The same blasphemy that people talk about today. Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. you ever seen anybody demon-possessed? you ever been face-to-face with a demoniac? It's kind of frightening. <laughs> right? We had several in the jail. and it, Occasionally, they'd, they'd pipe up and they'd get all kind of weird. I met a man told me he was Jesus Christ and kept commanding me in his father's name to do stuff. And uh, anyway, the... Uh, yeah, they're not going to, uh, demoniacs don't stand very calmly and, and give messages about the Father and the love and I am the shepherd and all this wonderful stuff. The contrast between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint caused some to doubt Jesus' sanity. He's speaking about the Father and laying down his soul. But see, those without the ears to hear or the eyes to see, they listen to everything he had to say and they're just, this guy's nuts. It's not making any sense. It's like night and day, two different people hearing the same speech. And one just walking away going, wow, wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that impressive? See, you say the same thing today about political speeches. You know, and, and the reaction to Fred Thompson last night. Some people just loved it, were eating popcorn and cheering. Others were just livid. Fury, or, or Palin, Governor Palin last week. Some people thought, ah, that's the greatest speech they'd ever heard. Others said it was phony, right? And start doing different things. Same speech, right? Same language, same words. You, you know, presumably, cognition takes place. But when your mindset is in a different frame, you take it two different directions. The undeniable miracles, though, left others without answers. The undeniable miracles. This is like the undeniable greatness of the mystery of Christ. Undeniably great is the mystery of godliness. The undeniable miracles left others without answers. And the others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So the undeniable miracles left others without answers. And I say without answers, they really had answers, but they were afraid to come to those answers. And so, I think we've got a lot of agnostics that say, oh, well, we can't know. Well, they don't want to know. Because if they admit what they 
would otherwise have to know, then they're accountable. So it's safer just to say, well, we don't really know. Okay? <laughs> All right. Undeniable miracles left others without answers. All right. Well, that will wrap up the Good Shepherd element. Um, we'll come back in three weeks, moving on to episode number seven. Episode number seven, which I don't have my notes with me. Whatever episode seven is. Well, <laughs> next item on the list is what we'll get to. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you for the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you for all of the shepherding passages in Scripture. It, it helps uh, pastors learn how to shepherd their churches. It helps husbands learn how to shepherd their wives. It helps parents learn how to shepherd their children. It helps older believers learn how to shepherd younger believers in the discipleship activity of a local church. Father, there is so much to be gleaned from these passages. We, we thank you. We thank you especially as uh, we're approaching an ordination service. We're approaching a time when a, a congregation can come together and testify to the, uh, to the gifting and the equipping and the uh, service of a new shepherd. Father, just so many things that are coming into, uh, coming into focus through uh, this study, through First and Second Timothy, through uh, everything that you're blessing us with. I just thank you for entrusting us with this truth and uh, working through us that which is pleasing in your sight. Father, we commit to you now, uh, each believer here, as we depart, as we return home, uh, grant us the traveling mercies and safety and bring us back in the next available opportunity. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.